When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Hello, I'm Nick Lowing. Welcome to the Emanuel Centre in London for this Intelligence Squared debate. Eight years ago, Barack Obama took his place in history as America's first black president. His slogan, Yes, We Can. Elected with sky-high expectations, he would reclaim America's moral leadership in the world. He withdrew most U.S. forces from Iraq and Afghanistan. His landmark health care bill was passed. By most measures, he fixed the post-financial crisis U.S. economy. But he has presided over one of America's most polarized eras. That's evident from the public reaction to candidates in the current presidential debates and campaign, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Lawmaking in Washington today is gridlocked over numerous issues. So the motion for this Intelligence Squared debate, yes, he can, no, he couldn't, Obama is a failed president. Let's now get the opening statements from the panelists. David Fromm, not only did he work for George W. Bush, he was also senior advisor to Rudy Giuliani's presidential campaigns. His latest book is 2012, Why Romney Lost. Today he shares the think tank Policy Exchange and is senior editor of The Atlantic. David Fromm, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going to try a little self-timing as well, just uh, uh, so I don't overtax anyone's patience. Um, 24 hours before Russian forces invaded Crimea, the Obama administration briefed journalists and Congress that the invasion would not happen. After it did happen, the Obama administration urged uh, Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian authorities not to resist lest resisting the Russian invasion of Crimea trigger a Russian invasion of eastern Ukraine. 
when the, when the Russians invaded eastern Ukraine anyway, the Obama administration then denied Ukrainian authorities um, any kind of assistance for months upon months. And when a, a, assistance was finally provided, only non-lethal assistance, the kind not very helpful in resisting an invasion of your country, only that was provided. Tonight, we are going to talk about the kind of presidency Barack Obama has led. President Obama has been the subject of so many paranoid and unjust, often borderline racist criticisms over his nearly eight years in office, that it is natural that fair-minded people will want to insist that no criticism of this president at all can be true. But the opposite of the extreme, the excessive, and the paranoid criticism uh, that the president has received is not uncritical adulation, although that he does receive from some quarters too. The appropriate response is fair judgment of the tasks he set himself. Now, a lot of things happened in eight years, and no president, not James Buchanan, has no accomplishment to show. President Obama has certainly done major and substantial things. Um, it is also true uh, that every president inherits difficulties from his predecessor, and we have heard from President Obama a great deal about those. The question is not, are you, uh, can, can you find some way to explain away your failings? The question for you is, did you succeed in the tasks you set yourself? And President Obama really began his office, his term in office, with two great historic tasks before him. One was to restore the American economy after the uh, fi financial crisis and recession of 2008-2009. My partner, Chris Caldwell, will mostly deal with the domestic issue. I will talk about the other task the President set himself, his task to improve America's standing in the world and to bring peace, uh, to disengage from the rest of the world um, and to establish a, mo a more harmonious planet with America as a more trusted leadership. And I think if you survey the planet, that what you will see is that there is almost no place on earth where the conditions facing America, the West, the democratic world are not more challenging, if not more dangerous today, than they were eight years ago. I began by referencing Crimea and Ukraine. Today, for the first time since 1945, a major power is waging a hot war on the European continent. 10,000 people are dead. Hundreds of thousands have been displaced. A civilian airliner has been shot down. There is no end in sight, and there is no serious process even undertaken to begin to return peace to the European continent. Across Europe, the borders that were lowered through the tr treaties, like the Schengen Agreement, are rising again on the border between Austria and Italy, on the border between Hungary and the non and, and Point South, on the border, of course, between Britain and France. That is getting harder as all of these countries cope with the giant flow of migrants that began first with the flow from Libya, where President Obama fought a war of choice. Um, President Obama often criticized, not unfairly, the Bush administration for not having a good enough plan to deal with the aftermath of war in Iraq. And the lesson he took from that was to have no plan whatsoever for the aftermath of the war in Libya. And the result is to set in motion this giant flow of people first from Libya, and now from the war that the President has repeatedly spoken about uh, in, in Syria, but has never acted on, where he drew red lines, where he would neither make peace nor make war, neither accept Assad nor overthrow Assad, but instead stand by doing nothing, uh, making no choice, while the largest humanitarian crisis since the war unfolded, 
a humanitarian crisis, one of whose casualties has been the integrity of the European Union and very possibly the strength of the transatlantic relationship. We see across the world American alliances weakening. Now, that is not just my opinion. Uh, you don't have to take that just from me. That is President Obama's opinion himself. In an interview with uh, my Atlantic Magazine colleague Jeffrey Goldberg, uh, the President said, uh, had paid a nice compliment to Angela Merkel. He described her as one of the few world leaders he respected. The other world leaders have noticed, and they return the, the emotions, the lack of respect that the President shows to them, they return to him. And whether it is the relationship with your country, whether it is the relationship with France, whether it is the relationship the re um, uh, with other countries, and those are more sensitive to this because our relationships with the European partners are very strong. They're not going to be damaged much by a few testy exchanges, even though the President did go on record having some very disobliging things to say about Prime Minister Cameron and former President Sarkozy. But in other places where the President does make a difference, the relationship is deteriorating. During one of the most important foreign policy achievements of the Bush years was to build a new strategic relationship with India. Um, the United States and India war game together. Uh, the United States and India began to share technology and began to share important areas of interest. These two great English-speaking democracies, at last, after many years of estrangement, finding common strategic purpose in the face of aggression from China. China is more aggressive than ever. It is occupying islands in the South China Sea. It is building an airstrip in the middle of the busiest straits um, in the world. By the way, southeast of Vietnam, nowhere near China's own territory. In March of this year, the former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee uh, said that there are more foreign agents operating in the United States today than at any time since the end of the Cold War. And of course, he meant Chinese agents. China is more aggressive than ever. But the relationship with India has been put on, on ice. We are not, we are, we are more distant from them. But the thing I think that maybe should most bother us is what is happening with domestic terrorism. The recent, we are, the recent killing in Orlando, horrible as it was, was um, horrible, horrible thing, was explained by this administration not as it could be explained as an act of gun violence, it was that, and as an act of hatred and fear against gay people, it was that too. But when this administration released its, the transcripts of what that caller said, they deleted any reference to Islamic ideology. You can't find and stop what you won't see and act against. There has been more internal Islamic terrorist violence in the United States since 2008 than ever before. And yet the administration won't say anything about it and is therefore defeated in doing anything about it. And that is a failure that is dividing our country, that is dividing your friend, and that is setting in motion a tone and style of radicalism and civic unrest that is dangerous to democratic institutions. I'm not a Trump supporter by any means. Um, I'm horrified by him. And yet, when I see where did, what made this sinister and buffoonish event possible, I think it is the insecurity set in motion by this president's refusal to act against the greatest internal threat to the safety of the United States, the greatest internal threat to the safety of Europe as well. And I thank you for your attention.
David Frum speaking first for the motion. Now the first voice against the motion. Neera Tandon, one of the architects for Obamacare, recently listed as one of the most powerful women in politics by both Fortune and Elle magazines. Today she's president and chief executive of the think tank Center for American Progress. Neera Tandon, the floor is yours. Let me, let me start off with uh, just a response to a few of David's comments, and then I will speak mostly about domestic policy. Uh, but I will start, start where he ended, which is the nature of politics today in the United States. And I have to say that to blame Barack Obama for Donald Trump is just a little too much for me to take. <laughs> Donald Trump is evidence of the failure of the Republican Party and the failure of Republicans who, from the beginning of this administration, chose to obstruct the president in everything he tried to do. And the idea... And the idea that he is a product of insecurity, insecurity about America's national security, is, is frankly outrageous to me. He's not, he's not roiling politics in both parties. The president has roiled, if anything, politics on one side. And it is the response of Republicans to him that is driving a lot of the anger in the country, an anger that is one-sided to be sure. Now, the president has not solved every problem in America. I would agree. We do have some problems that remain. And those problems remain because of the obstruction, or in large measure because of the obstruction the president has faced. But on the challenges he set out eight years ago, he has made incredible progress. Let's take the economy. The economy is one in the United States which is stronger than it has been in the past, not just from 2009, but even before. Today, the United States remains a beacon of innovation, openness, opportunity, and prosperity for the world. And it's not, you know, in spite of President Obama's leadership, it is in part measured by it. We have taken real steps on the economy. Our deficit is down 70%. Our unemployment rate is 4.7%. We continue to lead the world in investment and innovation. The four top cities in the world that attract startups are, remain in the United States. So, of course, there's more to do on wages and inequality in the United States. I agree with that. I do think we would have made more progress on those issues if we did not face an intractable Republican opposition who now oppose an infrastructure bill they supported before President Obama was president. What changed their mind? President Obama's president. They, they oppose a jobs bill, a minimum wage increase, a whole host of issues that they supported before. Now, the president also passed the Affordable Care Act, 20 million people have coverage 
It's a little odd to talk about these issues in another country which has universal coverage, but passing even the Affordable Care Act was a gargantuan effort that is succeeding. Despite every attempt to stop it, it is succeeding. And perhaps most important for the President's legacy for the future, for future generations, the United States is now leading in climate, not holding the world back, but leading on the issue of climate. We've heard for years that uh, China won't act, India won't act. All of these countries have acted because the United States is leading. And the Paris Accords were made possible by all of our leadership. The United States not holding back anymore, but being part of the coalition that helped produce that. Finally, just on the domestic front, I would like to also talk about this, the real gains we've had on social justice issues in the United States. Not in spite of the president, as we have in past presidents, but because of the president's leadership. Women can now serve in the military. LGBT folks can actually get married. These are trends that are, that are producing more and more and greater equality for more Americans. These are important, significant issues that we are able to that the president has helped lead on. Now, David talked about a number of issues around the world. And I would say he is right. The president does not leap into wars. He does not act unilaterally. We do face challenges around the world. But those challenges, some of them are due to the desires of previous presidents to rush into war. David knows all too well what the United States did in Iraq. And I have to say, I find it difficult to hear criticisms about the president's response to ISIS from people who supported in a war, a war of choice, that helped create ISIS in the first place. I would argue that the president's desire to actually work with our allies, work with our allies in Europe, work create new allies in Asia, these are, these are not issues for the day, but they strengthen the United States over the long term. I believe that the United States is a great country. We do not have to make it great again. It is a great country, and in fact, it is a greater country because of the president's leadership, not just on national security issues, but on domestic issues. And there are real angers in the country. And some of those angers, anger and resentment, is fueled because we had a President Obama. But he should not be blamed for that anger. It is not his fault people are angry because of the kind of president he is. And in fact, his support is stronger today than it has been the last couple of years. We will see in November whether the country is going to feed on that anger or respond to it with a different kind of politics. And I, myself, am optimistic because I believe the president has done great things for the country and great things for the world. Thank you. Neera Tandon, the first voice against the motion. Now the second voice for the motion. We have Christopher Caldwell, senior editor at the Weekly Standard in the US, 
prolific essayist and author. His latest book is Reflections on the Revolutions in Europe. Christopher Coldwell, the floor is yours. Good evening. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, I was saying to Bernard-Henri Lévy uh, when we uh, met earlier this evening that, that this is the first time I've seen him since July 2004, and the only other time I've, I've, I've met him, and it was actually the occasion was a lunch in Boston to which um, it was a lunch to introduce journalists to a young senator from uh, Illinois named Barack Obama. So this is the only—it's the second occasion we've met, and they both have to do with Obama. It was that day. It was two days after Obama had given his great um, Democratic convention speech about how there's no red America, no blue America, no black America, no white America, and how he was going to bring America together again. And I think that all of the journalists uh, in the room speaking for myself, and I even wrote a, wrote a column about it, uh, were just swept away by, by, by young Obama. Um, so I have to say, uh, probably like David too, I would love to be arguing this, um, this motion from the other side. Um, but I, I, I tend to feel, as, uh, as most Americans who were enthusiastic about Obama in 2004 do today, a little bit disappointed and uh, taken for a ride. Um, I think that Obama has wound up being uh, the greatest recruiter that the Republican Party ever had. Uh, Republicans now hold their largest congressional majorities since the, uh, since the 1920s. Uh, when Obama came to power, uh, Democrats controlled most of the country's um, state governments, of which there are 50. They now control 19. Um, since since Neera brought up the Affordable Care Act, uh, it might be interesting to look at the how Americans feel about that, especially since we're in a country in the, where the NHS is, uh, if I remember the polls correctly, more popular than the Queen. Um, I think most countries feel this way about their national health programs. Americans feel that way about, about Medicare, but um, even after six years of attempting um, to correct its inconsistencies, Obamacare is still polling below, um, below 40 percent. Um, Americans just don't like it uh, for the most part. I have to say that I do like certain of his policies. Um, the motion tonight has nothing to do with whether Barack Obama was a better president than George W. Bush. And it's probably a good thing for David and me that it doesn't. Um, uh, so I, I will even defend uh, most of Barack Obama's foreign policy. I think he's made mistakes. I think probably the Iran deal was a mistake. I think certainly the invasion of Libya was a mistake, although I remind you that it's a mistake for which your own prime minister um, shares much of the blame. But I think that Obama's decision not to bomb Syria in August of 2013 was actually prudent. Given U.S. power, there are tremendous pressures on any president to fight optional wars, and I'm, I'm glad he resisted the pressure to fight more of them. The problem is that in focusing, when he focused on domestic issues, 
his successes all came at a steep price in damaged institutions. Uh, you know, democracy moves slowly because listening to the public and listening to the people takes time. Um, that slowness is a, is a feature of democracy that we ought to, to cherish because it's, it's what makes democracy stable. Obama sees this slowness as a problem of democracy that he needs to correct. And that's what's made American democracy so unstable in the last eight years. When President Obama wants something, America can't wait, and it's always an emergency. The president prefers to work by executive order, and, and there are some celebrated examples of this that have driven the, 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 the country up the wall. He's moved to give working papers and tax numbers to illegal immigrants, uh, a move that would give them voting rights and, and eventually citizenship, which was recently rebuked by the, uh, by the Supreme Court. When employers complained that the mandates uh, written into the uh, Affordable Care Act were too onerous for them, you know, Obama gave them a year's grace not to obey the law. Everyone else has to, but these, these, uh, these large companies are too systemically important to need to, 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 to obey the law like like everybody else. Um, now, now, I know that, that, that some of the policies that I'm describing as irregular and undemocratic are policies you like. But if it don't, doesn't bother you that, um, that it's anti-democratic, I, I hope it bothers you a bit that it's plutocratic. Both Bill Clinton and George Bush brought too much private wealth into politics. Obama's innovation has been to bring private wealth into government. Um, he's done this through his close partnerships with, with investment banks who get fined and ex in exchange are allowed to continue their business the way they did um, and, 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 and have lived in absolute impunity since 2008. So I'm afraid that to, to call Obama a successful president is to accept the ruling class's own virtue, verdict about how excellent and virtuous the ruling class itself is. And that's why I urge you not to do that. I urge and ask you to vote for the motion. Thank you. Christopher Caldwell, thank you very much indeed. Now the second voice against the motion. Bernard-Henri Lévy, philosopher, writer, documentary filmmaker, especially outspoken in the wake of the Paris attacks. His books include Left in Dark Times, A Stand Against the New Barbarism. Bernard-Henri Lévy, the floor is yours against the motion. Always outspoken. Except tonight, being the only non-American on this floor, I would like to just to express what appears to me uh, to be facts, reasonable and objective facts. When you try to make the balance sheet of a presidency, there is a first rule, which is to see from where this presidency started. In the case of Barack Obama, it started during the biggest economical and financial crisis which America and the world saw since the 30s. This never happened since 80 years. Barack Obama was in charge. He acted 
it appears to me as a foreigner with cold blood, with wisdom, in unknown territory, taking some decisions which were very odd in the American culture, like the nationalization of General Motors, like the Dodd-Frank Act, regulating for the first time the rules of the banking system, injecting hundreds of billions, 800 billions dollars in the economy. At the end of the day, he handled this crisis as probably not a lot of presidents would have done at his place. If you try to make the balance sheet of a presidency, you have to, to remember what were the promises. Barack Obama made some promises during this campaign, and even since this original speech, which we had the privilege, Christopher and I, among others, but not so many, to listen to. These promises were not, of course, all of them fulfilled. He did not close Guantanamo, for example. And there is other things which he did not do. But objectively, if you try to be just decent and honest, you have to admit that there is a lot of these promises which were fulfilled and accomplished. And it was not easy not easy to generalize on all the American territory, for example, the gay wedding, the gay marriage. It was not so easy, especially after this huge and tremendous crisis, to go in the deep end of the extreme poverty and through the health acts of his presidency, the Obamacare, to repair some of the biggest damages of this mad economy, which is the economy of all of us today. Not so easy when you inherit of the governance of a country where you have millions of sons and daughters of illegal migrants who go to university, who want to enlist in the army to deal with this situation. He promised he would deal, and he dealt in a way. The DREAM Act was rebuted, but some of these um, situations were settled. If you look at the balance sheet, you have to see also what were not only his promises, but our expectation. I remember what we wrote, Chris, you and myself after this historical speech. It was clear that the election of Barack Obama would mean and could mean and had to mean something in this dark part of American history which is marked by the racial race question. He did it. He did it in a very wise way. After Ferguson and Baltimore, when he received the militants of the Black Lives Matter, when he delivered a few speeches after that, he did a lot to finish and to accomplish the great work which was implemented by John Fitzgerald Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson to repair this terrible bleeding wound which is the race issue 
in American history. And last point, I know I have 45 minutes, about the foreign policy. I can share some of the concerns of David and Christopher, except that at the end of the term, as if Barack Obama himself was taken by a sort of remorse of a will of achieving his own legacy, he does well. I'm coming back from Iraq. I saw how the American administration woke up in the recent month around Fallujah and around Mosul and on the road to Karakosh. You spoke about Europe. The recent speech of Barack Obama in April in London about the Brexit is a denial to those who believe that he definitely shifts from Europe to Asia. Europe is still considered at the end of this presidency as one of the roots of America. These are the reasons why I, should, I will certainly not vote for the motion, and I ask you not to vote too much for it also. Thank you. Right, let me ask for the microphones to be prepared. We've got four of them. Let's uh, have them coming down, please, uh, and uh, make yourself uh, obvious to anyone who's got a microphone, because I want to move on very quickly. But before I do, well, 18% um, of you hadn't made up your minds when you came into this... Uh, uh, this um, let me say this again. 18% of you had not made up your minds when you came into this room, uh, but are on the motion, for the motion, 17% uh, agree with the motion, but 65% are against the motion. So, David and Christopher, you have a bit of work to do in the coming minutes. Um, let me now get the microphones. Are you for or against the motion? Uh, against the motion. Uh, Bernard Henri Levy mentioned the balance sheet for Obama, and we can sort of trade, well, he achieved this promise or he didn't achieve that promise for the rest of the evening. But I, I don't feel that any of you have actually defined what you mean by success or failure in a presidency. I wonder if you could say how you define that and perhaps name a successful president. Come to that in a moment, uh, Bernard Henri. Number one, please. For or against the motion? I am for the motion, and I'm very disappointed that David and Christopher did not give a better argument. I think that there's a whole lot more that could have been said. What should they have said? Well, um, Bernard mentioned it about Guantanamo. I find him a very weak president. I, I feel that we've been in many situations where he could have taken strong action. He makes America look weak, which as an American I find heartbreaking. Thank you. Um, David and Christopher, you've pulled your punches. Well, I, you know, yeah, well, I, 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 oh, I'd like David, to... David first. Uh, all right. I think uh, your reference to the president's strength or lack of it actually points to something that is one of the greatest dangers of this evening. Um, and as you, uh, and that is Neera Tandon's reference to the obstruction the president faced. And this goes to a point that Chris raised. One of the features of the Obama years has been to suggest that when Congress or the Supreme Court does their duty, they do something wrong. Their job is to defer, not to obstruct. Even that word. Um, 
Congress is the body that makes the law. The Supreme Court is the body that interprets the law. When the Supreme Court does it wrong, however, the President scolds them to their face in a, in a State of the Union address, causing, by the way, an unprecedented breach of protocol thereafter that Supreme Court justices cease to attend the State of the Union. That is an example where the President's violation of usual norms has led to a breakdown in other norms. Um, in the same way with Congress. When Congress re- declines to do what the President asks, that's not obstruction. That's lawmaking. And when the President asks for a law and doesn't get it, that is not a failure of Congress. That is a decision by Congress. When the President proceeds anyway, that is an act of hi- high-handedness. Can I just respond just to that, just to clarify what an obstruction is? When 150 House Republicans support an infrastructure bill, the same infrastructure bill the President supports. They support it in 2008, 150. They vote against it when he becomes President. The same exact bill. That is what I am labeling obstruction. Of course House Republicans cannot support the President's position. Of course they can. But when you have the same policy that they championed before he became president, oppose it after he became president, there's something going on there. And it's not just an ideological difference because they supported the same bill before. Chris Caldwell, the, uh, the suggestion you're really pulling your punches. Well, no, I, I, I actually disagree with the idea that President Obama is a, is a weak president. I think that he's, um, uh, he's inactive where he chooses to be. He's um, extremely strong in, in domestic issues where he wants to be. Unfortunately, the strength takes the form of, of this kind of anti-democratic um, um, preference of judicial and bureaucratic roots over, um, over voting roots. What do we mean by a successful presidency? I spoke about bringing the country together and um, in the terms that Obama did in 2004 and 2008 in terms of race, in terms of ideology, in terms of party. But perhaps the real problem is an emerging, changing, new system of class, and, um, and that that has got, run rampant uh, under Obama's watch, and no one has paid attention to it. Uh, Nira just told you what is obstruction. I would uh, add to what she said, uh, filibustering is obstruction, Um, bailout is obstruction, Uh, leading the country to the edge of bankruptcy for ideological reasons, all that was obstruction. And this was the ordinary life of this American administration. What is a successful presidency? It is a presidency which, in spite of this situation, in spite of these so numerous and often unfair obstacles, advances, and makes her job, which the Obama administration, I'm sorry, really did. About the compromise, about the compromise, is the policy the art of compromise, and do we invest too much in the expectations? Of course. One American leader who was convinced of that was and is Barack Obama. One only example. Some of the most ambitious bills which he passed were passed without his majority at the Senate and the Congress in the last month, compromising with the opposition, compromising with the Republicans. This act of compromise is again the sign of a sane, good, and maybe grand 
policy. David Frum. We will not be able to arrive at a, a definition of a successful or failed presidency if we persist in deducting, giving Obama, President Obama credit for things he did not do and denying him blame for things he did do. Earlier in this evening, you heard that it was President Obama who took the decisive actions that prevented the financial crisis from turning into a global depression. That's simply not true. The Troubled Asset Relief Program, all of the measures that saved the financial community happened before January of 2009. They are passed by President Bush, to the, often to the despair, I think that it was his finest hour, but to the despair of many in his party, it destroyed a lot of his credit within the party. But whether you approve of those actions or not, they were not Obama's actions. Obama's actions happened after he was inaugurated, not before. Those were not financial, those were economic. And those are the attempt to stimulate the economy and get growth going. And guess what? Growth did not going. This has been the slowest recovery from the deepest recession. Normally, when you have a deep recession, you get a fast recovery. After the, in 1935, 36, and 37, the United States grew as fast as China grew ever at its fastest. In the Obama years, despite the depth of the, of the recession, it did not. At the same time, Nira gave the president, uh, gave, denied the president blame for ISIS. She said that that was something that happened on George Bush's watch. ISIS materializes after the revolts begin in Syria in 2010. President Bush was long out of office, and President Obama had made, made the crucial decisions uh, governing how America's response to the Arab Spring, and it was President Obama who decided that the United States would first draw red lines in Syria and then not enforce them. Again, if you are going to, before you evaluate, you at least have to get the facts right about what this president did and did not do. What he did not do, save the world from a depression. What he did, what he did do is look the other way while ISIS gathered strength. Absolutely. Okay, I just need to be clear on, on this ISIS point. The question about ISIS, just to not rewrite history here, is if Saddam Hussein was in power, would ISIS have developed? This is a question. They, have, in they are in response. ISIS is in, in response to the, build, to the collapse ISIS, of the Islam, government. ISIS stands for the Islamic State in Syria. <sighs> of course. They were also active in Iraq. They started in Iraq. My point here is that the, the cascading events in, in the Middle East, from the growing power of Iran, the ability of Iran to support Assad, is strengthened because of our actions to change regimes in Iraq. ISIS is strengthened because of the weakness of the Iraq regime that's in power now, which is a result of the Bush years. So, obviously, there's a number of things happening in the Middle East, but I think if you want to criticize the president's actions in the Middle East, you have to be honest about the mess he picked up because of the president, because of President Bush's decision to, in fact, invade a country that did not pose a direct threat to the America's national security interests. So we can get as many views as possible. Can you try and keep your, your responses as brief as is possible? Yeah. There first. I'm against the motion. One thing we haven't talked about is Cuba. I just wondered what both sides' view was on Obama's uh, uh, terms of fixing the relationship with Cuba. Right. Um, microphone two. For or against? I am against the motion. Do you feel that Obama has been a failure in amending America's gun control policies? Right, thank you. Uh, down to the front, please. Microphone three. For or against the motion? I said, I'm friends with somebody on that side of the panel. 
but I said I, I don't know. So because I have high standards for debates, which way are you I have moving? high standards for my presidents too, and uh, and I am moving toward this side because uh, of your friendship or because of the argument? Because of the arguments, although I thought your Nation of Islam argument was very interesting. I don't know how you measure the power of the Nation of Islam, but but that that's fine. Uh, my my idea is that the most important collaboration of two powers since the Treaty of Westphalia is Great Britain and the United States. And there has been enormous damage to this relationship during the tenure of this president. And I wonder, could I exhort the panel to respond to that? The insults, the, the, the notion that Great Britain is just another country instead of cousins of the United States, and, and that we have this a real special relationship that transcends other bilateral relationships. Thanks Thank very much. Uh Please, on microphone three, stand up and uh, are you for or against the motion? Uh, I'm against. Um, could you comment on the argument that because Obama is so strong rhetorically, he's so good at, I think, getting people on side when he speaks, that there's an argument that when he comes to put his speeches into actions and tries to pragmatically carry policies out. He makes people feel like there's a gap between his rhetoric and his actions and almost the way he's so good in front of people and at speaking has actually worked against him and made a lot of America feel like he's failed. Thank you. So we have a lot of points there. Let me just summarize them. Cuba, gun control, Obama, the balance there, the damage to relationships like uh, with the United Kingdom and rhetoric. David from Guns and Rhetoric. And I, I'm going to recuse myself from my friend Jeff's question, much as, um, because that looks too cozy, but thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, guns and Rhetoric, this is really important. Uh, and this goes to, I think, one of the fundamental aspects of failure. Um, I have a different view on guns from most Republicans. Um, I, am, I think they are way too common. There are, I think, something like, what, almost 100 million more of them today than there were on the day Barack Obama took office. Um, we should have fewer. Um, and especially of, of handguns. The United States will make progress on the gun issue when individual families decide it is dangerous, more dangerous to have a gun in the house than not. And that is simply good science. That is just a fact. It is more dangerous right. David, to have from, a gun in the house. But, but, when, but when President Obama uses his rhetoric, you find it, as the young other questioner said, you find it uplifting. The majority of the country does not, and we get more guns and more suicides and more unnecessary homicides. And, a, and, and what looks to those who are predisposed to be sympathetic to the president as a success is, in fact, a gigantic failure leading to stasis. David Fromm, thank you. Uh, Cuba. Yes, so... Uh, good, for, good tidying up, not an important issue, and now gun control. <laughs> I would say any time the United States turns its back on a 50-year failed policy, it's a good issue and an important issue. And, you know, I just want to respond on guns, because David has made this point, and it, and it really underlines uh, a lot of the discussion we're having tonight, which is essentially blaming... Barack Obama for the hyper-partisan response that he gets from the other side. Okay? I just need to say I reject that completely. If the idea is that the nation has a tragedy like Sandy Hook and the president can't respond because Republicans are going to be hyper-partisan in their response to his, what he's saying, that is not a failure of both sides. That is a failure of one side to put the country's interests above political response. And I am glad, I am glad, 
Chris Caldwell. I am glad the President chose not to do that. Christopher Caldwell blaming Obama for the hyper-response from the other side. Right. I think that's a good occasion to address the, uh, uh, the question from the Bernie Sandernista up in the, um, in the back there. Okay? I, I, think, um, I think you're right that there is a real critique of Obama to be made from the left because Obama represents something that a lot of people don't yet understand, which is that the bases of class have shifted. Class power comes now not out of industry and real estate and raw material, but out of knowledge and universities and Silicon Valley. And these are places where Obama, that Obama commands an almost unanimous majority. And so our, our political rhetoric is very tired. Obama is many things, but the main thing he is is the president of the creme de la creme, of people who come to, to debates like this. And so you hear people in rooms like this say, I find Obama's speeches so moving. And, and, and I'll bet most people do. But the, the, the people out in the country at large are absolutely deaf to them. And Obama seems to not to realize that he's speaking from the upper end of a, of a class divide. And, 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 and that's the source of a lot of the misunderstandings that have gone on tonight. Bernard Henri, uh, the people are deaf to these brilliant speeches. I don't understand well. Uh, so we, we would have to reproach Barack Obama to speak as a creme de la creme. Uh, we would have to regret that he speaks uh, as an intellectual, that he tries to, to get uh, uh, fine solutions and uh, uh, based on reflection and not on populist uh, reasonments. I think that this has to be put also uh, to the credit. He was not elected by the Silicon Valley. As far as I know, he was twice elected by the people of America, by the minorities, by the Latinos, which Donald Trump today insults, by the African-Americans who, who felt him as one of their sons and brothers. So a man coming from there and expressing himself as a decent intellectual, I think that this is the best of America of always and of today. Thank you. Right, down here, and there's a lady over there, I think. Please, microphone two. Hello, I'm uh, for the, the, the... I'm for, not against. Um, I'm just wondering, very briefly, if uh, Mr Obama is Donald Trump's best campaign manager. Because uh, the manner in which he has been running America has led to dissatisfaction with the Democrats and great difficulty with any serious Democratic opposition. Is there a lady over there who wants to come in, please? Or is your hand going up for other reasons? There. I don't know what they are, but um, please, for or against? I'm uh, against. It's, it's microphone three. Could you just repeat that, please? I am against. And I am, am surprised that David and Christopher constantly refer to the American public opinion when I, I've been lucky enough to be employed and have health insurance throughout my life, but I have friends and colleagues who lost their jobs and lost their health insurance. I have friends who couldn't change jobs because their child was uh, handicapped, and that would be considered a pre-existing condition. And when I was back home visiting, when all this was being debated, 
I was shocked at the advertisements that talked about death squads, that this, this brave attempt to try to tackle health care, which has been a problem in this country for decades, the first president brave enough to risk his personal, his personal career on something he believed was right, and the advertisements by the insurance companies, and, and I'm a Republican, but the advertisements by the, Repu the insurance companies shocked me. And I think that had a huge and profound effect on, on public opinion. And so when you say that Americans were against it, I wonder how much of that was because of the advertisements they were watching on television constantly. David Fromm, you made that suggestion, only 40%. <laughs> Only 40% uh, support uh, Obamacare. What do you say to that, that really there was almost a conspiracy? That was Chris. Uh, that was yeah, Chris. Sorry, Chris. Uh, may I take the question? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I, I, I agree with you. That I, I think that the, the, the insurance companies can be counted among the authors of the of the Obamacare thing. That's what the, that's, that, that's the constituency that the, that the so-called individual mandate, the requirement to, 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 to buy insurance that was just litigated in front of the, uh, uh, the, the Supreme Court was supposed to, to appease. Um, I also don't believe that Obama took a great risk to his political career. This has been a, the crown jewel of democratic policymaking for about two or three decades. And in fact, Obama pursued it to the absence of, of, of other initiatives related to the, to the finance crisis. It totally occupied his presidency for the first 18 months at a time when the world was in, in economic crisis. So I don't... So I, yeah. I, I think this is a great opportunity for me to just uh, say a few words about uh, the Affordable Care Act, and I'd also like to address the comment about Trump and Obama, uh, which is, uh, on the Affordable Care Act, uh, the, just to your point, it has faced $500 million of negative ads, and it has affected its numbers. But those numbers are around, are basically roughly equal, opponents and supporters. And the truth is that, let's put the politics aside, there are people alive today because of the Affordable Care Act, people who would be dead if they did not have that insurance. So regardless of how popular it is, it was the right thing to do. On the issue of Donald Trump and Barack Obama, I will just say again that... Uh, Donald Trump won the Republican primary. People did not have to vote for him. They chose to. I think that, in part, they were driven by a, a kind of intolerant, crazy hatred of the president, which David Frum has written eloquently about in the past. And I don't think you can hold Barack Obama responsible for the decisions the Republican Party makes. I hope we don't do that now or ever in the future. Finally, on the popularity of the president, because that is, was another question Chris responded to, Barack Obama today is the most popular national figure in America, okay? His approval ratings are at 53 54%. That is five times, maybe six times, the approval of Congress four or five times the approval of, Don, of, of Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell, McConnell. He's more popular than any other person. I don't think we should judge him by his popularity. I think we should judge him by what he did but I, and what he has done as president. But if we are making accusations that he has divided the country, that division is not a majority. There is a minority that has opposed the president and opposes him today. They do not speak for all Americans. And we should not act like they do. All right. Uh, move the microphone across uh, five people to your left, please. 
Hello, I'd like to say I've got a class full of politics students who are all against the motion. Um, given that Obama's first congressional session was the most um, progressive since the 1960s and did more than any other Congress has done, it showed what he could do when he had Congress on his side. So would you blame the increasing levels of partisanship on Obama, or do you think that's down to other social trends, such as more Republican voters voting in midterm elections, and hence more centrist politicians losing their seats? Thank you. Microphone four, please. Focusing on the motion again, Obama is a failed president. And, you know, how do we define success? And it isn't about some of the things that people have spoken about today. It's not about popularity, and it's not about good intentions, and it's not about rhetoric, um, not about integrity. It's actually about leadership, isn't it? Both domestically and abroad. And, and I would suggest that that would be a problem when we evaluate um, Obama's contribution. Thank you. Right. Let's pick up on particularly one of the th trends which has come through, which is what makes a successful president. There was a remark right at the top, Neera, about, um, uh, about uh, the best thing that happened to him was simply being elected. After that, it's been <laughs> not successful. Uh, you know, I think we actually should look at how the country is doing and related to the policies he's put forward. And I've definitely heard the criticisms that he was a community organizer and pro-union in the past, but I actually think that if you look at all of your measures, actually, from a social justice perspective, from a perspective of how inclusive America is, America is more inclusive today than ever in its history. Women's rights have been advanced in the military and in a range of other issues, LGBT rights, on terms of the economy. I particularly like to make this point internationally, which is absolutely the United States has challenges. Absolutely we have challenges in the economy, but we are doing better than most of our compatriots. Our unemployment rate is below 5%. We do have challenges on inequality, a lot of the world is facing challenges on inequality. That is despite his efforts, not because of them. It is hard to argue from a conservative perspective that the United States is doing poorly when corporate profits are at a historic high. The goal we have going forward is to ensure that those profits are better shared in the economy, not worse shared. That means building on his policies, not going in the opposite direction. David so, Frum, uh, there was the, um, yeah. the view over there that there's great disappointment yes. with what you said and how you said it, starting at the beginning. Well, my heart's just broken. <laughs> you know, I'm afraid that along with the big plane and the mansion, scrutiny is part of the job. And, I'm, I'm so, and I don't think the president, I, I, to give about President Obama credit this, I don't think he would say what you have said, that it is our job not to disappoint him. I think he does understand that he works for the American people. But as, and not vice versa. But as for the suggestion that it's some kind of conspiracy theory to note that in, a way, in, in the face of a wave of Islamist violence inside the United States, the president has looked away. As it happens, I brought with me a list of those incidents. Now, in the time available, I can't read all of them. Please don't. I'll just, I'll, I'll just, indicate, I'll just indicate a few of them. And, and in every case, 
the President declined to notice or to mention what was going on. June 2009, attack on a Little Rock, Arkansas recruiting station kills one, wounds one. November 2009, the Fort Hood killing, 13. April 2013, the Boston Marathon bombing done by two Chechen Islamists, three killed, more than 200 maimed. July 2015, another attack on a recruiting station, this time in Chattanooga. December 2015, the San Bernardino mass killing, and of course, June 2015 in Orlando. These dots, they're not any more dots. I mean, they are bullet-riddled forms that make an outline. But the president, and the president knows what that outline is. He doesn't say it because he thinks it makes his job more difficult. But you can't defend against what you won't acknowledge. The phrase Islamist terrorism is not some talisman that we demand that the president say to make us feel good. What we want to know is does he understand the problem and can he connect the national security dots? What has been so alarming inside Europe has been the evidence of missed connection again and again. That Orlando killer was identified, was interviewed, was known to be dangerous, and nobody did anything in time because they were haunted by another story, which is the story of that boy who made the, the clock that looked like a bomb. And when his school did something, it was the school that was humiliated and the boy made a national hero. And doesn't that deter anybody from acting on the kind of suspicions that the Orlando shooters' co-workers all had? I don't blame the president for any of this, but it is it, it is because I think what he's, try, he's trying to do something else that he thinks is more important. But naming your problems in order to solve them is important, too. David, you, you have no idea why the FBI didn't investigate that. We don't know that that's connected to concerns about the clock issue in Texas. This is, that's just says we something you we were that, saying on your own. We the issue here is the president, were nervous about the president respond. Yes, that is not why the FBI did, didn't investigate. You just said the FBI. The, the president literally just responded to this last week. Hillary actually talked about it as well. We can say Islamist terrorism as much as we like. There's no power in it. When you say the word, we do not end terrorism. It's not, it's not the difference between success or failure using those words. As the president used them just last week. So that issue, I think, is a side issue to the debate of whether we're secure or not. I now uh, have the result of the vote by you uh, here in the Emanuel Center uh, here in London. Let me remind you the way you're thinking when you came in here at the start of the debate. Um, for the motion, 17%. Against the motion, 65%. Undecided, 18%. Uh, a reminder that the motion is, yes, we can, no, he couldn't, Obama is a failed president. Well, the result of the debate is that uh, there's been a significant move uh, towards the motion, particularly by the undecided. Only 6% of you haven't made up your minds. 35% are now for the motion, and there's been a reduction in the support against the motion to 59%. There's, so there has been a, an 18% swing uh, towards the motion, but not enough to carry it. So I declare the motion defeated, but by a narrower margin than when you first came in here. Thank you very much indeed to all of you. Congrats. Congratulations to... Uh, uh, both sides for the very, very trenchant remarks that we've heard uh, supporting their positions. Our thanks to the speakers, to you, the audience, here in the Emanuel Centre. A fascinating debate. My thanks uh, to Intelligence Squared for making it possible. Goodbye from me, Nick Gowing, and everyone here in London. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. 
If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.